Rusty, I appreciate you kind of bringing the context together about what is going on with the scriptures that we're looking at this morning. There's so much that happens, and as I've said many times, you read the Gospels, and you're moving through the months of Jesus' life, the years, the days, and you get down to this last week, and it begins to slow down, and you get to this last day, it, it, it almost comes to a halt. It just ebbs forward with what God is doing through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's so gripping as we look at this. Uh, so this morning, we're not bringing a lot of the context that leads up to it. That is one of the reasons why we do expositional preaching here, so that we will move through the gospel in the context of what is being taught there, or in one of the epistles, or in one of the uh, Old Testament history books, whatever it might be. We want to be able to teach what is happening there, not just isolated, but this morning we're making a bit of an exception for this week and for next week because this is a time where our culture and cultures of many people around the world will look at the gospel perhaps maybe for the only time of year. And uh, thankfully, that's not the case with you brothers and sisters, I know, but we want to focus on this and really bring this glory. If you would look with me at some scriptures as we begin, I'd like you for, to turn to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And in the introduction, we're going to look at a few different sections of scripture. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his pleasure, displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now turn to the New Testament, chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. God has moved in this thing that we call the cross, this work of the cross, with it in mind from before the beginning of time. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross, when it is actually understood beyond the pretty gold necklaces and the lapel pens, the television and movie dramas, the t-shirts and the ball caps, the cross is absurd. It is absurd to those who are hellbound. It remains to this day foolishness to those who are being destroyed. The cross is an outright offense. In other words, it is a scandal to the self-confident religious mind able to arise to God on its own. The cross is dull and the cross is stupid to the atheist and the humanist who see it as folklore and myth. But for those of us being saved by it, the cross is the great demonstration in the history of the world of God's unmatched power and His unsurpassed wisdom. The central event of all creation from the beginning of time is the cross of Christ. But how, how could this be? How could one man's brutal execution divide the entire world into two distinct people? Those who were inspired, inspired of it to sing the mighty power of God. And those who see the cross as foolish and weak. The impact of Jesus Christ's life through his humble servant love, his powerful and perfect preaching, the countless miracles of healing, demon possession, deliverance, bringing dead men and a little girl back to life, the impact is incalculable. You can only imagine the tens of thousands of people, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, that were affected during the ministry of Jesus on earth. In those days, the people flocked to him. They praised him. They followed him everywhere. And they demanded he be their king. This was the Messiah. But that is not what they demand now in Luke's account in chapter 23. Verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. Christ has gone from the coronation of a king to the crucifixion of a criminal. And he is not alone in his suffering. Remember, 
Jesus was not the only one going through the excruciating pain and public humiliation that day. Two other men barely mentioned in history. Two other men were also stripped, beaten, and nailed with long iron spikes through their hands and their feet onto a wooden crossbeam. Three men, one location, one afternoon, one execution team, but with drastically different conclusions for each of the three. We know of Jesus on the center cross. Matthew writes the introduction of two others. Matthew 27 verse 38 reads, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The two men. The two men nailed on crosses next to Christ are convicted criminals. They also have been sentenced to the terrifying torture of crucifixion. What kind of crimes had earned them the dreaded cross? Luke labels them as criminals or wrongdoers. Matthew describes them with the Greek word leistes, which means an openly violent robber. John uses the same word to describe other, another violent criminal in chapter 18, verse 40 of John, which reads, Now Barabbas was a leistes, a violent criminal. And then Mark gives specifics on Barabbas, and he says, And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. These two men crucified beside Jesus had likely murdered while committing robbery or quite likely during a violent riot against Rome. Their behavior while being put to death reveals their character. Matthew 27 verse 41 reads, Likewise the chief priests, also mocking with scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Mark chapter 15, likewise the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes. Do you picture this crowd of arrogant religious leaders? Saying to one another, he saved others, he cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. To many gathered for the public execution at the place of the skull, it was the end, and it was defeat. It especially appeared that way for the three men nailed to the crosses. Many onlookers saw in the last few hours of Jesus' life simply the final death pangs of a man who had held such great promise, such great promise for their future. He had transformed their lives. He taught them about God with authority never heard before. His miracles were mind-boggling. He brought people back to life. He brought freedom and joy and peace and healing. Even Satan and his demons had been no match for Christ. He defeated them at every turn. 
But now, but now the most humiliating and painful form of execution man had ever devised was being carried out upon their hero. The despicable presence of cursing criminals on each side of Christ was just one more blow of humiliation that Rome added to the spectacle. But all is not as it seems. The impact of Christ's suffering. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Matthew and Mark both record that the adjacent thieves were heckling Jesus even as they died. In spite of the fact that they too had been brutalized through the sordid and agonizing process of crucifixion, though they both are suspended above the ground, hung by six-inch spikes piercing each of their wrists, and one through both of their feet, in wicked stereo, they still have enough evil strength to spew hatred on the man on the cross between them. Now dispel from your minds any false image of this event. Sometimes even our hymns and, and things get us thinking away. But Jesus' cross does not appear taller or more robust or more majestic than the crosses of the convicted thieves. It does not stand out with a charming beauty or glow of holiness about it. Each of these three crosses is a combination torture, humiliation, and killing machine. Jesus is simply executed with them, just as Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant 700 years earlier. Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, He poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In spite of the humiliation and the hellish pain, these two dying men despise Jesus just like the crowd, the Pharisees, and the Romans doing the killing. Their taunts were the same, except notice one distinctly sarcastic plea with two words added. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. It was a sordid matter of perspective that added the personal touch from the thieves and us. But, begins verse 40, and as you know, that word but almost always signals to the reader that a contrast is coming. I strongly campaign for this as one of the greatest contrasts in all of Scripture. Look with amazement at the miracle of repentance. The miracle of repentance. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him. Now before we look at what the other said, consider. As the slow, torturous hours drag out, the first criminal continues to rail on Jesus and then Shocking words. Shocking words begin to launch from the lips of the second criminal. Somehow, the transformation immeasurable has just occurred in this second man. 
hours, perhaps, perhaps even just minutes before, he had been mocking Jesus. And now, not only is he not taunting the Christ, but he is defending him. That, my friends, is the quintessential example of the Greek word metanoia, repentance. In its truest sense, repentance means a change of mind. How, I ask you, could there be a more graphic picture of a change of mind than this? Look very carefully with me at the next three verses. The radical change that over, has overtaken this man is one that every one of you must consider. This is not exclusive to the thief on the cross. Do you realize that this once mutinous murderer now grasps an eternal truth that the religious leaders, the soldiers and citizens are completely blind to at that moment? He responds, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The gospel provides humility and justice. This perishing criminal, he is gripped with a deep fear that has moved way beyond his dread of dying on that wooden cross. As frightening as the specter of the physical death may have been, he is now possessed with something much more terrifying. The fear of eternal judgment before a just God. He knows he is just. He, he knows he is judged and condemned. His heart is stricken and the far greater judgment of God flares up as an incendiary blaze before him. If only all men and women could see what he sees. Jesus once said, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. This thief, is now entrapped in this truth. His own body would soon be dead. And some would look at him and think, at this point the thief's situation couldn't get any worse. The Romans could kill him, but when that was over they could do no more. But now with death inevitable within a few painful hours, he realized there was someone who, after he killed, has power to cast into hell. Such fearful knowledge only God could graciously reveal. The other thief, literally only a few feet away, under the same conditions, same condemnation, knew nothing of this fear. Romans 3 tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. The now God-fearing criminal also recognizes that Jesus is exactly, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, He who knew no sin. Jesus not only was innocent of the charges decreed, but throughout His entire life committed not a single sin, not a single offense towards our Creator, not a single transgression, not, no iniquity. He was pure as a driven snow. He was perfect in obedience to God. And he was the first and only sinless man. And he, the thief, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His reliance is upon Christ alone. He knew with utter helplessness that he had no other hope but Jesus. We would feel pity for him if it wasn't true that he was in a better position than most of us. He will rely on nothing. He, he can't even move. How ironic is this moment. The thief is staring at a man before his very eyes who is dying just like him. That middle cross is occupied by a man reduced to the fate of a despised criminal. He is filthy. He is bloody. And he is beaten. He is naked and his flesh is shredded. He is completely exhausted and he is literally pinned to a wooden cross with nails just like the ones driven into the thief himself. That thief has heard Jesus humiliated by every sort of person imaginable passing by and hurling insults and mockery at him. By every outward measure, he appears absolutely helpless and defeated. Yet, this thief dying in agonizing pain and humiliation a few feet away from him calls him Jesus. Savior. Some of your translations say Lord. Savior of mankind. What kind of eyes does this man have? Can he not see what is right before him? But he sees something different. Remember me, he says. Why would he say, remember me? Because he recognizes this is not the end for Jesus or for himself. This Savior will soon be in a position to remember him very soon. His request to be remembered is much more than simple intellectual recollection. This thief is attributing to Jesus the power and authority to do something about his eternity. Jesus, remember me when, when, when you come. The thief confesses that not only is Jesus soon to be leaving this place of death, but he will be coming to something quite different. Leaving the place of skull and coming into 
your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yours there is in the genitive case which makes it possessive. It shows ownership. And that ownership is over a kingdom. This Jesus on the cross beside him owns a kingdom. What does the word kingdom imply? What is the root word in English of kingdom? It is king. It is one of dominion and authority. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief's transformation is an absolute miracle. The Spirit of God has revealed to him that Jesus is Lord. He will soon leave this dark scene of death and be transported into his very own kingdom where he will reign as king. And please think carefully about this. This thief believes his request will be heard by such a king. It will. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. One could say, what gall for such a man to speak to the Lord of the universe. He is, Christ is doing something that is crucial to the soul of every man who will ever live. He could have looked and said, you fool, I don't have time for this. I'm busy saving the world. But he doesn't. This Jesus is so amazing. He is, he is so compassionate and, and so capable and, and everything mixed together. And he is on this cross pouring his life out and he listens to this man who had no business even speaking to him. But he cries out in humility. Did this thief understand salvation? And the identity of Jesus Christ? Did he? Did he understand heaven? Look at what this thief possessed. He possessed the fear of God. He possessed the understanding that God will judge. He knew the just condemnation of his own sin awaited. And he saw the sinlessness of Jesus and the power of Jesus to save him and his own need to call upon Jesus and the reality of eternal life and the dominion of Jesus as king over the realm of God. Now whether this convicted criminal could have spelled out each of these theological truths in a written treatise or paper, I do not know. I doubt it. But he knows it. His plea to Christ demonstrates a deep and accurate knowledge of Christ and a saving faith given by the Spirit of God. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gift of life. Truly, firmly, surely, even in the last hours on the cross, Jesus' grace and mercy defy the works-based system of his executors, his accusers. This convicted criminal's entrance into the kingdom of heaven is confirmed. Why? Because he believed in Jesus. That was a scandal to the Jews and their leaders. 
But the gospel is always scandalous to those who do not accept the grace of God. Praise God for what Brad shared this morning. God ties these things together so often. The grace of God. Today, Jesus says, not in a few days, in a few weeks, or some distant future, but today, you will be with me. Where would Jesus be? He's not in hell fighting devils, as some would say, or he's not down there preaching sermons. It says he will be at the right hand of his Father in paradise. The ESV describes this as the dwelling place of God and the eternal home of the righteous. That's where he will be, and that's where the thief will be. Jesus gave this promise many times to those who would believe on him. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, even thieves on a cross. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him, do you see at that last day, on that cross, everyone who looks on him and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. John six forty three. later in that chapter, Jesus answered them and said, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Paul repeated Jesus' promise. Romans ten thirteen. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Titus 3, verses 4 through 6, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but because of His own mercy He saved us. He saved us through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, who, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What a, what a gospel. I ask you now, How many acts of kindness or deeds of service or good works did that thief produce in order to earn the promise of Jesus? How many? We know not a one, did he? Not a one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Romans 5, capsulated between 6 and 10, gives great hope to any of us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will not one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood on that cross. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. For the convicted thief, salvation was a transforming miracle by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, 
it is still that way. Jesus Christ remains the only hope for a man, whether he is dying pinned to a cross or living the most fruitful, productive years of his life. There is no difference. Any and every man and woman needs Christ, for he is their only hope. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it is still, it is still a transforming miracle every time anyone is saved. It is a miracle that this wretch, Kent Hobbs, is saved by faith in Christ and that alone. It is all the work of God. I have no greater claim, but just as great a claim to be with Christ as that thief. We are saved only by the grace and mercy of God. Harry Ironside used to tell about a young Russian soldier. The story goes this way. Because his father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I, the young man had been made a paymaster in one of the barracks. The young man meant well, but his character was not up to his responsibility. He took to gambling and eventually gambled away a great deal of the government's money as well as all of his own. In due course, the young man received a notice that a representative of the czar was coming to check accounts. He knew he was in trouble. That evening, he got out the books and totaled up the funds he owed. Then he went to the safe and got out his own pitiful small amount of money. And as he sat and looked at the two, he was overwhelmed at the astronomical debt versus his own small change. He was ruined, and he knew he would be disgraced. At last, the young soldier determined to take his life. He pulled out his revolver, placed it on the table before him, and wrote a summation of his misdeeds. At the bottom of the ledger where he had totaled up his illegal borrowings, he wrote a great debt. Who can pay? He decided at the stroke of midnight he would die. As the evening wore on, the young soldier grew drowsy and eventually fell asleep. And that night, Tsar Nicholas, as was sometimes his custom, made the rounds of the barracks. Seeing a light, he stopped, looked in, and saw the young man asleep. He recognized him immediately, and looking over his shoulder, saw the ledger and realized all that had taken place. He was about to awaken him and put him under arrest when his eyes fastened on the young man's message. A great debt, who can pay? Suddenly, with a surge of magnanimity, he reached over and wrote one word at the bottom of the ledger and slipped out. When the young man awoke, he glanced at the clock and saw that it was long after midnight. He reached for his revolver to shoot himself. But his eye fell upon the ledger and he saw something that he had not seen before. There beneath his writing, a great debt who can pay, was written, Nicholas. He was dumbfounded. There was a czar's signature. He said to himself, the czar must have come by when I was asleep. He has seen the book. He knows all. Still he is willing to forgive me. The young soldier then rested on the word of the czar. And the next morning, a messenger came from the palace with exactly the amount needed to meet the deficit. Only the czar could pay, 
and the czar did. Only God can pay what we owe. And God has paid that in his son. In the last moments of his life, the thief realized this. One, the judgment for his sin was coming. Two, he had no way at all to repay. And three, only Jesus on the cross beside him could save him. Little did the thief realize that at the very hour of his request, Jesus was dying to save the eternal souls of millions like him who believe in Jesus as the King of Heaven. Please, in closing, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Verse 23 reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, the satisfaction of His just wrath against sin. God set Him forth by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14 reads, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do this? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I ask you to look at what the thief saw enumerated on the worksheet. What did the thief see? Do you see that? Do you see Christ as that? Do you see yourself as a thief saw him? Do you see your desperate need? Look to Christ. Trust in him and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us an account of what had taken place there as you placed your son as he mounted willingly that cross and suffered beyond what we could ever imagine, Father, for your righteousness and your justice is pure and holy. And the wrath that was poured on your son that should have been on me, that should have been on many here, but he took that from us and you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Father, Father, please awaken the souls of those who reject, who dismiss, who will not take the time to come to Christ. Please forgive them and draw them to you. But we trust your justice. We trust you are right. And Lord, we just ask for mercy.
You are a good God. Thank you that you would take the time in the midst of all that you do, that your son would take the time to look to this thief and forgive him. And I ask that you would do that to individuals here, Father. And thank you that you have looked on men like Ken, like Matt, like Mark, like Elaine. And you have granted us your mercy. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.